Welcome to the workshop tied to the dock, the traditions and personal recovery. My name is Lorraine and I am a compulsive overeater and the moderator for the session. Hi. Before we begin, please turn off your cell phones and pagers. This workshop is being taped. All opinions expressed by those who share are their own and not necessarily those of OA as a whole. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, ask-it-basket questions, and sharing on the topic. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. The reading is from AA's 12 and 12, page 130, which I will read now. The AA member has, has to conform to the principles of recovery. His life actually depends upon obedience to spiritual principles. If he deviates too far, the penalty is sure and swift. He sickens and dies. At first he goes along because he must, but later he discovers a way of life he really wants to live. Moreover, he finds he cannot keep this priceless gift unless he gives it away. Neither he nor anybody else can survive unless he carries the AA message. The moment this 12-step work forms a group, another discovery is made, that most individuals cannot recover unless there is a group. Realization dawns that he is but a small part of a great whole that no personal sacrifice is too great for preservation of the fellowship. He learns that the clamor of desires and ambitions within him must be silenced whenever these could damage the group. It becomes plain that the group must survive or the individual will not. And okay, and we're going to get right to our first speaker who is Patricia from Piedmont. Patricia. Hi, I'm Pat. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Pat. And um, I signed up to be a moderator, and I open up the mail, and I get this thing telling me I'm going to be speaking. And, of course, I immediately panicked and called my sponsor, and she she said, well, it's a great topic for you. You've got a lot of experience. You'll be able to cover it really well. And Pat, it's a traditions workshop. Nobody's going to be there. <laughs> and you guys are not nobody, but this is a small group, and I feel much more comfortable. I did bring my pictures if anyone would like to see them. And I'll, I'll qualify for a few minutes, and I don't think there's anybody here who's heard my story, so I'll include a little bit of that. Um, I've been in the program for eight and a half years, and for eight and a half years, I have been bottom line abstinent clean. I have had slips. I have not been perfect. I will never be perfect, and I never hope to be perfect. But for eight and a half years, I have not gone into the cupboard at night, taken out the 24-ounce jar of peanut butter stuck in the spoon and eaten it. That is my heroin. 
that will just set me off. I will be a horrible person to be around. I will be ugly and unpleasant if I do that action. I also stopped night binging, which is what I did. I'd stay up till all hours and eat and eat and eat and then sleep in as late as I possibly could, could get away with and still hold a job. Um, I entered the program at age 50, so I have a lot of how it was, a lot more how it was than I do how it's become. And um, I think I was born a compulsive overeater. My first word was cookie, and um, and it took off from there. I, I always thought about food. My family thought about food. They may not have been compulsive overeaters, but they made their peace with life around food. I didn't get along very well with my uh, father, but if we'd go out to dinner, we wouldn't fight. It would be a beautiful experience. And I always associated eating with love and with caring and with, with a quiet time, a time when there wasn't a lot of shouting and all. And um, I carried this with me uh, for many, many years. And I didn't know that was what I was doing, but I sure carried it with me. And it made me an ugly person to be around. Um, if I couldn't get my way about food, I would boss you, harangue you, control you, do anything I could, because I wanted to get my drug. And um, we were fairly poor, um, but the quality of food was important to my family. And so we always had good things around. Um, I'm going to take a little detour here for a second. I imagine some of you are staying in the hotel. And I don't know if any of you opened up your um, Hilton booklet and turned to that page where there's this big picture of a pint of Ben and & Jerry's. And it says, you can order this, you know, through room service. It's only $5.95. And um, yesterday... I tried to have, well, I did have dinner at the Daily Grill, waited a half an hour to get seated, and then 45 minutes till they brought the food. They brought it at 25 after 7. I was sitting there with five other compulsive overeaters, and we're all clenching our fists and looking around and just being frantic because we weren't going to get our food. You don't get over this. this. This part is still, I mean, one of the people there has been abstinent for 38 years, and we still have this feeling, but we didn't eat over it. But when the evening was over, I realized I hadn't had enough dairy. Now, I, I, I eat according to an old Weight Watchers plan. I weigh and measure, and I'm supposed to have a certain amount of calcium. Well, I went off, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to eat? How am I going to get the calcium into my diet? And um, that's when I opened it up, and I thought, well, maybe there's a, I can order a container of yogurt from uh, the room service menu. And I looked at it, and, well, there was a breakfast item with yogurt and fruit-flavored yogurt, and it was like four fifty. and then there's the two fifty delivery charge and the tax. And, and I, didn't, I wasn't willing to pay $9 for a 79-cent container of Dannon's. And then I turned the page, and I saw the Ben & Jerry's thing. $11 for a container of Ben & Jerry's was really tempting. Eight and a half years later, and I'm you know, still in love with Ben & Jerry. My husband is a sad third next to them. And I was really close. And I remembered that 
even though it was too late to call any of my sponsors, my food sponsor, my my old food sponsor, my step sponsor, my old step sponsor, I could call my higher power. And I turned away and I prayed and I said, please take this temptation away. I know I'm just tired. I know that I didn't get enough sleep. And it worked. And it hasn't always worked. I mean, there have been times where I've, I've been unwilling to turn it over. But I remembered that I'm not alone. That is a major principle of the program that has saved my ass time and time again. So I started out a compulsive overeater. 59 years have passed. I'm still a compulsive overeater, but I'm, I don't act on it. And that is the difference. And that's because of this program. Um, I was, I always had a high metabolism. If you look at my pictures, you see it wasn't until I got to be in my 40s that I actually put on the weight. And so I didn't know that I was a compulsive overeater. I knew that I had this weird relationship with food. I mean, we'd go up to Connecticut. I lived in New York. I grew up in Manhattan, and my grandmother was in Connecticut. And we'd drive up there on weekends, and we'd stop. There's a great Jewish bakery around the corner, and we'd get loaves and breads and all the things my grandmother loved. And I'd sit in the back of the car with a loaf, two feet tall, or a foot and a half, I don't know, of corn rye bread, and I'd hold on to it, and I'd start eating like a typewriter. I'd go across one, the top until I got down to about half, and I'd put the bread with my teeth marks and everything back in the bag, and that's what I gave my grandmother. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I never took food out of the garbage. I didn't have to. There was always other stuff around. And when I was single and on my own, I always made sure there was plenty of food in the house. And being lazy was a blessing because I was never willing to go out late at night to get binge foods, the things that I really liked. I mean, I, I've known to eat imitation bacon bits because I was hungry. And I'm spiritually hungry, not hungry hungry. Um, I'd eat anything that I could find in, in the cabinet, but I wouldn't go out and buy a container of ice cream. So if I didn't already have it in the house, I was safe. So that's the kind of an eater I was. I think probably some of you were like that way also. I'm going to get some water. So at age 50, I came into this program. I was totally defeated. My mother had just died. And there was something gnawing inside of me, a great hole. I was very close to my mother. And I, I could hear her from another dimension saying, you've got to get your life together. I'm not there to help you anymore. And I remembered from oh, 10, 15 years earlier when, when I was doing the Weight Watchers program, I read in an Ann Landers column about Overeaters Anonymous. It was in the back of my head. I never did anything about it, never followed up on it. But I didn't want to spend a lot of money on a diet plan because they just didn't work. I've seen them fail too often. And I'd been through all the, the free diets and the, the things that you read in books and you just try and follow. And I could always lose the weight, and it would always come back. And then I'd, you know, with, it, with more pounds than I started with. And um, so I just, I decided, okay, it's time to try this program. And I... Um, made a phone call. I looked it up in the phone book, and I made a phone call, and I got chewed out by this woman who had 
dropped out of the program saying, I told them to change this number. I'm not the person anymore. And, and then she calmed down and gave me a number. And I called, and nobody was there, but I found a phone number. or I found a recording that told me where certain meetings were, and there was one the next night. And I showed up, and it wasn't there. And so I called the number again, and the following night, this is the third time I'm trying it, I found a meeting, and I went. I've never stopped coming back, and that's what saved my ass. Keep coming back. There's so many things that have saved me here, and uh, I'm really grateful for them. And I've learned a lot in this program. Um, I've learned how to live my life. I've learned um, that I don't need to control you. I don't need to control myself. I just need to trust in my higher power and turn things over and follow what my higher power tells me. And if I don't know, I don't act. And if I don't know, I don't open up my mouth. And if I think I know and I don't really know, I don't open my mouth. So this is supposed to be about how I use the principles of the program in my everyday life. And I do that. Um, I sometimes I think my life hasn't changed that much, and I talk to my sponsor, and she points out to me that, yes, it has. It's changed a whole lot. Um, there are several areas in my life where the changes have been really huge, and one of them, I guess we most of us have had to deal with work problems. Um, I've been working at the same company for 35 years. I'm a professional communicator. You think I could communicate, but I can't. Right. I can better now, but I couldn't for many years. Um, I'm a journalist. Um, I got into that field because I wanted to control. I'm not a writer. I'm an editor. I take what someone else does, and I control it and make it better. Um, I also joined, I also took on that profession because there were odd hours. I didn't have to work nine to five. I could probably find a job that would let me work late afternoons and evenings. So guess what? My first job, I had to be there at six in the morning. That lasted two years. I, I, I would get into the office, go into the ladies' room, fall asleep, and come out three hours later. And I was the only female there, so they, they couldn't send anybody into the ladies' room. It was the 60s. And so I got to take a nap on company time, and I was stealing money from the company that way. I don't do that anymore. But I've been working at a large newspaper for 35 years, and um, for a good chunk of that time, I was my own department. I mean, I was an editor but I, and had a staff of writers, but I didn't have to check in with a lot of people. I was able to do everything on my own, and I liked that. It was you know, total lack of responsibility to anybody else. I was not accountable. If I got the work done, that was fine, and people left me alone. Well, that didn't last forever. It was just too much work, and the department expanded. And guess what? I guess I wasn't as hot as I thought I was because they did bring in somebody else and put him over me. And every time the department expanded, we get somebody higher and higher. And about 10 or 12 years ago, I was working for two people who were the Tweedledee and Tweedledum of monster bosses. At the time, I would call them assholes, but right now I can just say they were spiritually sick individuals who had a hard time dealing with their staff. 
And um, over the 10 years, um, initially I would fight them. I would, I'd be willing to suffer any consequences just to be right, just to be in control, just to not follow the rules. And once I came into the program and I had a sponsor, she said, pray for them. You have to pray for them. And I prayed and I prayed. And I prayed one of them to a million-dollar buyout. She's gone. And the other one got sent to another department. And I now have two really good, supportive, loving, um, fabulous bosses. I'm working really, really hard now. And I don't mind because these people respect me. They trust me. And they give me enough rope to hang myself with, and I choose not to hang myself. Um, we are now, um, I'm in a union. We are working without a contract. And uh, Tradition One takes over here. Um, our common welfare should come first. And I always used to think that the people up in corporate would make their decisions saying, well, we don't want Pat to be happy. We don't want Pat to have a raise. I mean, Forget the other 950 or 1,000 people in the company. I, I mean, I was so self-centered. That's how I looked at it. And little by little, through listening to you folks, by uh, going to meetings, by reading literature, by living, and by trying to apply all these principles in all, all my affairs, I finally began to understand the whole issue. My industry is not going to survive unless we all give a little bit. Um, we are a team. I don't have to like the people on my team individually, but I have to respect them and trust them, and I have to respect and trust the management to the degree that they deserve it. And they have been trying to do the right things in the paper. Right? I think they have. And suddenly from someone who hated everybody who was one level above me or higher, I now understand them, I accept them, and I realize that I have to do my part. And if my part's a little bit bigger now than it used to be because of the way this industry goes, so be it. If I want this organization to survive, if I want my livelihood to survive, I have to be willing to do my share. I have to pull my weight. That's a whole new idea for me. It's nothing I ever had before. Um, and I've learned to listen to the people around me. I used, I used to be so bitchy to, I, I have a whole series of editorial assistants who do data entry and do work uh, for me. And when I was eating and they would make a mistake, all I could do was say, oh, I don't want to say those words in front of all you, but I, I would be very bitchy to them and make Make them feel less than so that I could feel more than. And um, with this, this whole new approach to my life, I am more open-minded. I understand that they have reasons for doing things the way they did. I understand they can't read my mind. They can't do it my way because they don't know what my way is. I have to be clear. I have to tell them what I need. And if they say they don't want to do it or they can't, I have to listen to them and understand why. And um, I could never accept that before. I had to be in control because I was afraid if I let go for one second, my whole world would fall apart. And whenever I felt like that, I'd eat. And 
as I said, because of my metabolism, I didn't eat a lot. I mean, I mean, I ate a lot, but I didn't gain a lot of weight. And um, and when it finally caught up, I got even uglier. I got really, really ugly. And um, the seventh tradition around around work. You know, I used to be. I used to love to get away with things, do the minimal amount of work for good results, and I wanted all the applause, of course. And uh, I would take home pens and scotch tape and paper. I'd do my Xeroxing there. Once we got the internet, I'd play around on the internet. And the way things have gone, you know, this program came along at the right time. I have learned that. Yeah, I'll spend an hour doing personal stuff on the work computer, and then I'll stay an hour later and do work. And I don't care if I'm there till midnight. I'm going to stay and be fair to my employers because they're fair to me. My paycheck shows up in my, my account every week. They don't take an hour off because, well, maybe you were on the Internet. Um, they don't take off um, 45 minutes because maybe I was on a personal call and I ra racked up some phone uh, charges. So I make up for it as I go along, and my bosses know I do this. I do, I do tell them what I do, and they're all fine with it, as long as I do my job and do it well. And I go out of my way to do the best possible job, and it's probably not the best job in the world. I'm not perfect. I'm not a great editor. I'm an okay editor. I'm a pretty good editor. So my whole experience at work is so much better. We're working without a contract. We might go on strike. I have worked on, on faith. Um, I turn this over every night before I go to bed. I turn over the whole situation of possibly being out of work because there's nothing I can do. And eating a loaf of bread or whatever is not going to suddenly mean that we're going to sign a contract. But that's where my mind goes. That's, you know, that's where, if I'm hungry, angry, tired, or lonely, that's the kind of thinking I have. That if I eat something, the problem will go away. No, no, it won't go away. It'll just, just not, a, it'll not be clear to me for a little while while I'm under the influence of that drug. Um, another area, I'll just move on a little is um, my relationship to my husband. Thank you. And my husband is, is um, not in program. He's never been in a program. But boy, God sent me the perfect man for me. I got married at 45 because I never trusted anybody. You know, I keep people at a distance. He is a 12-step person just because he was born that way. He trusts me. He encourages me to be in this program and do everything I need to do. And from him and from this program, I've learned to trust him. I've had relationships in the past. I liked all the bad boys, the good-looking bad boys who didn't give a damn about me. He's not a good-looking bad boy. He's a nice-looking good guy. And he's good to people. And he's generous. And he's kind. And I, I am so grateful to have him in my life. And... Um, We've been together for 24 years. We've been married for 14. It's only been in maybe the past two years that I really accept him for who he is and for what he does in our relationship. 
And there again, tradition one. We're a team. And if I would get really resentful, well, I did the cooking, I did the cleaning, uh, I, I did the shopping. Why aren't you washing the dishes? Why aren't you cleaning up? Well, he does so much more than I do at home. And I would leave his stuff in the sink. I don't do that anymore. You know, I mean, I was just so spiteful and horrible. I, I, I can't believe he stayed with me, but he saw something in here that I didn't see. He loved me before I could love myself, just as you've all loved me before I could love myself. And I'll wrap up with the, the, the final relationship, because this is a relationship topic, is my relationship with my mother who's gone. I finally finished my ninth step amends to her this week. And I was finally able to acknowledge that although everybody outside thought I was just the best daughter, that I was not the best daughter to her. When she was dying, when she was very sick, and she wanted me to come over and play Scrabble with her, I couldn't find the time. When she wanted me to take her to um, doctor's appointments, and she wouldn't make them, she, would, she couldn't remember, she was taking so many medications. She wouldn't remember that I said, don't make them on a Thursday. I wouldn't readjust my schedule to take her. I'd say, take a cab. And I, I was very good to her, and I called her every day, and I visited her a lot, but I did a lot of bad things. And I've been walking around holding this inside. And I have to be honest about it. And I did talk to my sponsor when I did my fifth step with her. I told her about this stuff. I hear that, and I'll, I'll be finished in a second. And I wrote a letter of amends to her this week, and I think I lost about 10 pounds of that fat in my head because that, I can't think of anything else that would account for my feeling so much better about myself today than I did before. But it's all stuff I've learned in this program, and I love this program. I love all of you, and I am so humbled to be asked to speak today, and thank you all for being here. Thank you, Pat. Um, okay, our second speaker is going to be Louise from Pasadena, who will speak for uh, 20 to 25 minutes, and I'm going to start the uh, basket around questions, if you'd like to throw one out. Thank you, Patricia. I brought, I keep these in my wallet, so I might as well pass them around. Hi, I'm Louise, grateful compulsive overeater and bulimic. Hi, and uh, I have 15, 15 years of abstinence from sugar, throwing up, and chocolate. And I'm, I am 62, so these wrinkles came from age, not from the bulimia. I just thought I'd pull that in. <laughs> uh, when I read the thing that we were that we were given to read in the book, I had the feeling we were talking about just the first tradition. And that's okay because I see the first tradition as kind of being like all the rest of the other eleven explain the first one. You know, the first tradition is the unity and the 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 importance of the group coming before the individual importance and then all the other traditions kind of explain to you, well, how do you do that? And it's real interesting that I get to talk about unity because I've been, 
I've been doing the seventh step on on my character defects, and I really like to be the star. I, of course, this is the first time I've ever spoken in front of a bunch of people with a microphone. After 15 years, it took me six six months of absence before I'd even speak and open my mouth at a group. I mean, my first chip, I just said thank you, and you know, I I just couldn't look at people because I guess if I couldn't be the star, I just wanted to crawl. On, I just didn't want to be looked at, or I did some really like idiot asshole type things. I was not necessarily rude to people, but I just make do some really downright foolish things be, so you could laugh at me before you laughed at me when I was trying to be cool. And uh, I can't remember which is the one I wanted. Okay. Uh, but the thing about unity is, is I just have to learn to be as just one person. You know, me standing up here telling you whatever God is putting into my mouth, sending out of my mouth, is no more service than you guys sitting there because I have, we have this meeting, and it gets really, really small. I mean, sometimes we get one and two people. I mean, sometimes it's just the secretary. And but we follow all the traditions. We send them, you know, even if it's three dollars, we'll send three dollars to the, diff, you know, we'll send money to the different groups. And we, and I know, and I felt so grandiose because I was the secretary. And there'd be a couple of times that nobody would come, and but I came, you know. But it was time to give up my position. And I had been in groups where people didn't do this, and I just said I'm giving up the position, and I just let it go. And that was maybe three years ago. And we now we have ten people, and they pretty much come. And sometimes it gets small, and sometimes it gets big, but it's always good. And and I think that reminds me because it really I don't do we don't do anything at all. And I'm not a worker among workers anymore, thank you God. But um, I do suffer. Um, I suffer from this, like I'm a dancer, and I just want everybody to look at me and think I'm the hottest, cutest thing. And it is real humbling to say this in front of people. And I've been on my knees every morning and every night praying for this defect to be removed and this desire to be a star and all this bullshit. And sometimes it does, and the heart, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes I just go, whoops, oh my God, there's that thought. and some of the unity, I've always been an isolator. I'd rather be alone. It's very hard for me to force myself to. OA was the first place where I really, truly felt that I was there just to be myself. When I was raised in my family, my, I was so afraid of connecting with people because our family connected like this. You know, I had to eat, breathe, think, and believe exactly like, I mean, we had to fit or we didn't count. There's a quote in this old psych book that said, I needed their love more than truth, and I learned adjustment. And you obeyed and behaved and fit in in order to be part of my family. And so that probably is why I got my nose-thumbing attitude that, 
you're not going to control me. I'm going to maintain myself, and if I have to be fat, ugly, evil, say bad words, whatever, then I will to keep you away. And um, I remember I had well, I'd lost my husband at a very early age and hadn't remarried for, well, I lost him at 25, and I got into OA at what, 45. But I was needing something, and I didn't belong in a widow's group because I'd been a widow too long. I didn't belong in a divorce group because I, no, I didn't qualify for anything. And when I walked into that room, from the very first, I really belonged. Uh, because I knew that all I had to be was me. And when I, when I have, I've, it's not that I've never led meetings, but I've never had a microphone. Um, I just figure whatever I say is what comes out of my mouth that's going to keep my recovery going. And whatever you happen to hear is what is going through your ears to keep your recovery going. Because sometimes people don't hear what I say but they hear what they need to hear. And I believe that's how it works in the program. And I don't, and if you understand me, this, uh, okay, let's see. And it's, well, okay, Bill said, we are not people who would normally mix. And I think it's really good that we don't always talk about who we are, what we vote for, uh, Sometimes even our food plans, unless we, you know, and different things because I have a friend in program and she just votes for all the wrong people. I mean, she listens to the wrong people on the radio and <laughs> she chuckles when she gives me advice. She's in program. She has a lot of recovery. But, you know, this is an outside issue and we connect on the spiritual level. We connect on a feeling level. But we, you know, we just, we just pretend, you know, it's an honest denial. We just don't talk about it. And what your occupation is, is not relevant because I have this, part of this defect I keep having is there's this ladder. That one of the books talk about that there's this ladder and some of us are here and some of us are there and some of us are there and because you make more money or because you have a cooler sounding job. I mean, I really am looking for another job, and I want it to be a cooler job. I used to teach first grade. And I'm, I'm just bloody blanking, sick and tired of people patting me on the head when I tell them I teach first grade. Oh, how cute. I go, oh, thank you. And, you know, like, don't you assholes know this is a really hard job, and you require many years of child development and et cetera. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a job at a junior college because I – because I haven't resolved that ego issue. Wait, <laughs> maybe maybe you'll see me teaching nursery school. I don't know. I don't know because it's, the principle is actually unit. You know, I'm I'm going to do what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do the footwork and send out the resumes and see what happens. I'm really floating right now, and so I'm really glad I have a program to come to because I don't know. I do get a paycheck for waking up, which I think is really nice. Uh, and Bill also said, when someone annoys us, to remember that this is a sick person, and how can we be of service? And this helps me here in the meetings 
Well, it helped me more in the beginning. I'm smarter now. And it helps me at work. I had two bosses. One was sexually harassing me, and the other was just being mean and controlling. And my dear mom said, Honey, pray for him. He must be miserable to treat you like that. And I says, I can't, Mom. I just can't. He's just driving me crazy. I can't. She says, well, you do it. I says, you pray for him until I can. But I did it anyway. And I swear to God, the man stopped harassing me. The more I prayed for him, and the more I gave the power to God, the less power this guy had. And it's almost, there's a book where the monster gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And the more I prayed for him, the littler and more pitiful this man looked to me. And I could look upon him with sympathy and affection of a very high spiritual level of affection. Obviously, he was he was harassing me. but uh, And it, it did go away. And the same with the the, prince, the boss that was mean, mean to really quite mean, and, and threatened to uh, do this and that and the other thing. And I just prayed for her because this is getting off topic. But I prayed for her because it doesn't really change her. You know, if I pray for her, it changes my attitude toward her. And then that what the speaker at the previous meeting in here, it breaks that defense. If I'm praying for her, she's not feeling my defensive energies, and then her defense, why is not important, but when I pray for them, it just helps. Uh, And one of my sponsors told me, and I have it still posted on my computer, identify don't compare. But this is one, I mean, I should be here because this is what I like to do. And I, I'm so glad I don't have a boyfriend because what I used to do is say, is her butt bigger than mine? Is, her, is my butt, how, I'm trying to figure this out. You know, do I look fatter than she does? Does she look fatter than I do? I said, Jesus, where can you find? I mean, this is, this is where my brain goes. And I can't, I'm not going to be better if you're worse. Somebody really famous said that there, there's enough out there for everyone. If I hide, I used to hide my intelligence and my good qualities because it made my sister uncomfortable. She had trouble in school, I didn't. And I used to just downplay my, downplay my I even downplayed my dancing because it made her uncomfortable. But my joy isn't going to make her, my downplaying my joy does not make somebody else unhappy. I mean, happy. I just be me, be happy, and then she she can be as happy as she wants to be. And what she thinks isn't related. And I'm, for the first time in my life, actually running out of things. Um, but the, practicing the principles in all my affairs, the unity or the the... Principle of unity does work when I'm dealing with my family because my mom is 94 and and she's slipping and slipping and my sister's her main caretaker and it's real important that she my, to my sister that she stays in charge and I value her choices and I value uh, her love for my mother, my two brothers and 
unity is important because it's not important who's doing what. It's important is what's getting done. Um, and I'm really, I can share just some of, what else? The traditions I do at work, oh, I'm self-supporting. Oh, I have a granddaughter. I'm trying very hard to keep to keep the boundaries, to be myself and to be of service without getting smushed up into somebody. I've tried, I've had relationships with guys and I have done some people pleasing to be the good little girl, but I, I'm more and more just busy suiting up, showing up, and being true to myself, checking it with my sponsor because I really have a sick head, but being true to myself and checking it with God and hoping, and then if the person is not comfortable with me, that's okay. And if I'm not comfortable with them, that's okay too. Uh, I like what you said about the bread. Uh, my bread was different. I had fat, I had soft bread, and I remember because I knew there, I was no one I could count on in my family. I truly believed my sick brain, truly believed that no one was going to take care of me. And I was like 10, 11, or 12. I believed that I was the one in charge of my family. And when my mother got sick and had to go to the hospital and my dad was concerned, I really panicked. And I remember sitting down in the corner and instead of doing, that's cool, I should have tried that. But I used to peel the outside layer off the bread, roll it up into a tiny little ball, and eat that, and then I'd squish, and then I'd squish the other bread in little balls, and I would just eat it and eat it because I was so, so incredibly afraid. And I think I really, until I got in program, honestly, except for the period where I was married, believed I really was alone. That no one would be there for me. That unless I behaved, unless I behaved and did what I was told. When I pitch about the bulimia, I feel like I'm a, like a very fragile, decorated egg on little stilts, trying not to, uh, totally full of my pus. Like, I have evil thoughts, but I can't behave. I have to behave. I want to beat the fucking shit out of my sister. But I, you know, but I, no, but I don't. I behave. I behave. I'm perfect. And you're supposed to notice how perfect I am. And... It was really hard work. In the, in the four today, it says my false front is so exhausting. And, God, before, I used to spend my whole life either trying to behave, so you'd all notice me and tell me how wonderful I was, or I would really be mean and sarcastic and bitchy. Uh, so, so you wouldn't tell me before. I am honestly, truly running out of, I'm not running out of recovery, but I'm running out of time. Which, how much time do I have? Eight plus the five? Uh, oh. Okay, it's okay not to know what to say. Well, I can talk a little bit about the steps. I know that the, the steps are so important to me. If it weren't for the recovery I had on the first three steps with the food, I would never ever
be brave enough to trust God with my character defects. Uh, they were with me. They protected me. They served me. I didn't think I could live without chocolate. I didn't think I could live without throwing up. The pain of all the crap I had stuck down. Psychic pain. I didn't really have a stomach ache. But that pain was so hard to live. I didn't think I could not I could live without my disease. I didn't think I could live without my fix. And one day I I'd been sitting in a whole lot of OA meetings and there was one uh woman who said she'd thrown up 15 times a day. And I heard her. I heard a couple different times she pitched. And then I hear everybody saying, it's, it's a progressive disease. It's a progressive disease. And one day, it just came into my brain. And I asked God, I said, if I don't stop now, I am never going to stop. And I stopped. And it went away like some alcoholics say, their desire for liquor. The the, the food and stuff, no, that, that's, that's a constant fight. That, that can speak to me from a restaurant five blocks down the street. It can tell me it. And I think if God hadn't, because I'm so stubborn and so independent, and I will do it myself and I don't need it, and thank you, God, I don't need you, because, well, my mother told me that if I really, really behaved and I was a good little girl, then everything would be fine. And I was a good little girl, and I... I behaved pretty good, and and my husband died when I was really, really young, and I was so mad, and I thought, well, if I'd known he was going to die after six years of marriage, we would have had sex before marriage, and I was so mad at God that to take him away after I'd been so good, God and I didn't talk from 1969 until I got into program, because he messed up, and that's a lot of work when you don't even have, I mean, I didn't trust my mom and I didn't trust God. My dad was pretty okay. But it's hard work doing it all alone. It's, it's hard work living your life and controlling. I teach, I love teaching school. I mean, my biggest thing was I got mad at the kids one day. And they are the first grade. And I just stamped my feet and found on the desk. And I said, why don't you guys just act your age? <laughs> And I go, duh, they're exactly where they're supposed to be, page 449. They can't read because they're five, because you're the bloody reading teacher, you know, and thank God. And so if, if, he had, if God hadn't removed, if he hadn't removed the bulimia so miraculously, I wouldn't have turned over things. And I think that maybe I'm taking it for granted. I don't realize how far I've gotten. I know the people in my life that don't. My sister used my sister used to live in my head. I mean, I had a, she used to she used to diss on me from in real life and when she quit doing that she used to she lived in my head. Just constant running a constant she's not there anymore. And when she comes back I just gotta go away. Um, things are better. I, I am mostly kind to my mom. I play rummy a lot, but not as much as I should. Uh, maybe I'll go up tomorrow and do it. And uh, my life is so much better. I've had, for the first time in my life, fear of financial insecurity because 
this nameless school district I work for uh, messed up my health insurance and my retirement and stuff, and I, you know, it's kind of like all floaty around when the money's coming in, but it's not all floaty around where it's going out. And I, and I who do not depend on people, I do not depend on people. I crashed my car out in Arizona when a bunch of us were dancing. And I honestly was just going to go call a cab, you know, go back to the motel, call a cab, take care of it. And one of the police officers says, don't you have anybody? And I said, yeah. And, oh, about half a dozen of my buds from, from town that were also at the dance, you know, they took, they took care of, they, they gave me a ride, they this, they did this, they took the extra luggage, another one stayed and took care of my car. And it's really, really humbling because that really goes against my nature to take, because now I'm going to owe them something. Or if I do you a good favor, like if I speak now, oh God, now I have to do it again. Um, and you know, if I do you a favor, then you're going to expect more. And so, thank you for a, it's a stream of consciousness and all I can say is that that what I say is my recovery. I'm not a public speaker, um, but God God works miracles, and uh, I know what I would be like if if I didn't have a program. I'd be 500 pounds, taking care of my son's wife and children that he can't take care of. I'd be I'd be one of those Jerry Springer type people that are so large you can't get off a bench. I saw one screaming at people to make them happy. And that's me inside. That's just one compulsive thought away from being that. And uh, here's where I get to, here's where I really just get to be me. And I'm going to stop, even though. Thank you for letting me share. Okay, thank you, Louise. Um, We will now have 10 minutes of questions from the Ask It Basket. Thank you. Uh, Okay. So I think we do have some questions there. And when people come up later after this, will you please remember to sign the release form when you share? That's going to be after this little session. So do you substitute sugar for sugar-free items? This isn't directed to either, so if both of you would like to... I don't have a problem with sugar. Sugar doesn't particularly please me. So whatever, um, you know, I do eat desserts. I, I just, my problem is portion size. So, um, you know, someone else in these rooms once said, a portion is an individual unit. And so my idea of dessert would be one piece of fruit, like a watermelon. <laughs> I'll eat sugar-free stuff. I'll eat stuff with sugar, I just have to weigh and measure now. That's my only experience with that. I can just say a little. My abstinence is not to have sugar, and I have to be real careful lately because they're they're changing. There's certain brands of sugar substitutes 
that fit into my abstinence, but they've invented some new ones that are made from sugar, and I have found I can't do that. There's a place I used to go and buy something, and God has given me an aller- a real allergic reaction to the sugar. And if my nose starts stuffing up, I go, that's got that other stuff in it. And so I have to start reading labels again, like what kind of artificial sweetener. And that's all. This one is for either speaker or both. Have the meaning of the traditions changed for you over time? P.S. Thanks to both of you for your sharing. At the risk of sounding corny, well, the traditions was the thing they read when you went to the bathroom. I mean, that was the thing that no, I didn't pay attention to the traditions. And uh, seeing that little bitty meeting, that the traditions keep everything together so people get to get to hear the steps. If it weren't for the traditions, we wouldn't hear anything. Absolutely. Um, I didn't pay much attention to the traditions when I first came in. I think most people don't because I was so desperate. I just wanted to know how to lose weight and how to stop feeling bad. Um, But um, the only tradition I was really familiar with from the start was the seventh, and that meant throwing a buck or two into a basket. And that was it. That that was all I thought of it. And now I realize that the traditions are the substitute for a governing board. The traditions are what keeps this organization going. If we follow these traditions, the organization will survive. If we don't, it won't. Okay, the next question. How has the tradition, the only requirement for OA membership is an honest desire to stop eating compulsively, affected your recovery? And I think that's for both of you. Well, to me, that also relates to principles before personalities. And um, I've seen people come into these rooms, and they drive me crazy. And I have to say, they have the desire to stop eating, and um, they belong here. And I have to remember principles before personalities. I am not here to judge them. I am here to love them, because for everyone who comes in, our group is that much stronger. The next question for both of you, how has OA changed you? Well, I'm nicer. I trust people. I look people in the eye. I smile at them. Um, I listen. I keep my mouth shut. I don't give too much advice, uh, even to my granddaughter. Um, 
you know, what other people think. Somebody said at the last one, what other people think of me is not my business, but what I think of them isn't really their business. I don't need to tell people. Yeah, I'm a lot nicer. I'd hate to be with me if I hadn't had children. I don't eat at night. It gives me a lot of time to do other things like work on the steps and all. Um, I love my husband. I accept my husband now. I didn't really accept him before, but I, I mean, I loved him, but I didn't truly accept him. I wanted to change him. I don't try and control people now um, in any aspect of my life. And um, I forgive people. Uh, I forgive myself now. I, and I accept myself and I love myself. And um, I can admit when I'm wrong. That is a big one for me. So I'm wrong a lot. And things that I thought I knew, I realized I didn't know. And I'm learning new things. And I'm teachable. And um, I, I'm more humble. I, I didn't know what humble was before. And I know when to stop. This one is definitely for me. It says, as a teacher, how do you let go of the control of your classroom and students? Um, I actually wrote a thesis about this. Um, it's, I think that the, because of the program I teach, I'm really a significantly better teacher. Uh, it, it's like doing an, in, it's not, is to get is to get that level of detachment that their successes and failures are not about me personally. I suit up, I show up, they come with the best that they have and if they if they mess up or they do something wrong, uh, what I've stopped what I stopped doing is like, well, what's the matter with you? And to get into stuff like that I just be observationally. Like Oh, this is the, just factual observation on their on their um, behavior. It's also it's also helped me with the parents just to listen to the parents and accept them for exactly where they are doing the best they can. Um, and if you're really interested, I could talk a long time about that. If, but I think for the general people, that's about it. Thanks. Those are all the questions, all the written questions we have. Um, we will now have open sharing. We will have time for three or so shares, maybe more. Um, if you have already shared at another workshop, please give others a chance before you come forward. Limit your share to three minutes. Stay on the topic and sign the tape release form after you share, please. Um, would anyone like to come up and be first and share? and? Break the ice. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. I'm Angela. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I wanted to thank the speakers very much and facilitator for being here and being here for convention. 
Um, I've heard a lot of good things, and I, I guess I, um, when we speak about the traditions, I love to speak of the traditions. I was used to going to a meeting on, on Saturdays, I guess for about 10 years, and each meeting we would read through the traditions in the AA book, not just the set, the traditions in the AA book and the OA book. And I began to understand them. And I think one of the better ways that I understood the traditions, and particularly the tradition of unity, is a person who's released quite a great deal of weight uh, in their ensuing of the steps in recovery uh, said that the steps themselves are homeless, or let me put this right, the steps themselves are suicide prevention and then the traditions are uh, homicidal prevention. That is, the steps, as we all said, it, it, the steps themselves kept us from killing ourselves and the traditions help us not to kill one another. That's a one way of looking at it. I thought it was very clever. I, I'm a, I guess I have sardonic humor. I'm not very humorous when I talk. I'm more of a, I have one of those um, uh, depressive personalities, you might say, like <laughs> James Taylor is, you know, he's known for that. So I like Fire and Rain. I thought it was a good song, but uh, I do like to try to um, be humorous. But um, in unity, um, I found that it is very important to focus on our common bonds. Um, I feel that there, I shared this before, that in unifying and, and understanding why we're in the rooms together, that it isn't uh, necessary that we obliterate or just um, try to conquer out our God-given distinctions. In reality, we're sewn together by common threads. Uh, one of the, the introductions to the OA 12 and 12 says our common bonds are two. It limits it to two and not that we are all in one cult. It, and sometimes I think we get to be very fanatical and we need to do, deprogram from fanaticism when we we look and see each other. Um, God created us in his own image, and, and it's my higher power. I call my higher power God. And it's okay that we see things differently. The biggest divisions in the Fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous have been over not cultural issues, but food plans. <laughs> the first time any of us, any group seceded from the OA Union was because we couldn't come to agreement over which plan was correct or wrong, or which was right or wrong. And it'll always be that. It'll always be, uh, as Bill W. says on page 53 of the 12 and 12 of Alcoholics Anonymous, we have an inability to form a true partnership with another human being. We either depend upon them entirely too much or we try to conquer them. Uh, it's phenomenal that my growth and seeing and being with other people has been willing to do the other part of that on page 53, uh, again, in the 12 and 12 of Alcoholics Anonymous, seeking to find that elusive Brotherhood. It says we knew very little of a true brotherhood. We had little comprehension. And I think that, again, is, is letting the distinctions between the way we practice our programs, the way we are culturally. We do, as someone quoted today, uh, page 449 of the third tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's further on in the fourth edition of the Alcoholics Anonymous book. We came out in 2001, the fourth edition. But the acceptance is the key to all my problems. If I accept... Um, that people can't eat sugar, and I can't. I always uh, <laughs> had fought that part of it, that people can and can't. And I'm one of the people who's tried sugar-free desserts. I remember when I was going to conference, and there was a sugar-free product, and I got some of it, and I'm eating in the airport. I had a time to do that. That when I get back to conference, people wouldn't vote for me because they saw me eating a sugar-free dessert in the, in, in the airport. And, uh, again, to each his own, and each person's program, they practice that, and, and they don't have to be aligned with me. Away isn't necessarily a cult. It's a patchwork quilt of varied people and varied ways we practice programs and varied cultures. Thank you. Thank you.
you. Okay, who else would like to come up and share? We're a small group, so if you're afraid of talking in a big group, this is a great time to get up and share um, whatever, uh, hopefully on this topic of the traditions. And it does, we are speaking actually of, as I see it, all 12 traditions. So, and personal recovery, that is the topic. So anyone else want to get up and share on it? Well, I will share. I, I, I think I'm allowed to. I am Lorraine, compulsive reader. And I want to thank both the speakers. I mean, I, I really appreciate both of your stories. And I, I hadn't heard either of you before. And I, I love the traditions, but I really love tra- Tradition 3 and 5. You talked on Tradition 3. The only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop compulsively overeating. And if I hadn't seen that when I came in, or of course it's read every time at every meeting, I don't know I don't know if I would have felt welcome or if I would have stayed, because that was one of the things that they weren't saying. There was not one other thing that I had to do but have a desire, okay, a desire, not even be abstinent, but just a desire to stop eating compulsively. And I really felt a part of when I heard that tradition and when I read that tradition, because it was like, okay, maybe I'm not ready yet. And maybe I don't know what this whole thing is about, but you're saying I'm a member if I say I'm a member by this requirement. You know, that's it. That's it. Totally it. And I definitely felt a part of it. And from the first time I walked into the OA rooms, the thing I felt most was acceptance, that love from, from all of you. And I felt hope. I felt hope for the first time that, Maybe there's a chance I don't have to kill myself with food. And I didn't know too much else about anything except that tradition gave me, you know, gave me the right to sit down in these chairs. And Tradition 5, which says each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive reader who still suffers. And that, that I've found to be very important that carrying the message. You know, every time I came to a meeting, people that got up and spoke, that's what they were doing. They were carrying the message to me. They were sharing their experience and and uh, uh, how they got in here and what happened and, you know, and what they're like now. And it, and I didn't feel alone anymore. It's like, you mean other people eat like I eat and have crazy thoughts about food and act the way I do and um, just completely are addicts. I call myself an addict because I'm addicted to food. That's my drug of choice. And and there are people, other people that are like that. And so, and my sponsors from the beginning always impressed on me the importance of carrying the message of that I have to give back. And I heard something earlier today about not only giving back, but that we get, you know, of what we get by just being in the rooms and listening and and it's a privilege, and I, I am just so excited about this whole weekend and this convention. I went up last year to um, to Sacramento, and that was exciting. And I plan to go to Oakland next year. And, you know, it's just, it gets better and better. There was someone who said to me when I came in the program, they said, it gets better and better until you think it can't get any better, and then it gets better. 
And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, and I have come to find out what he is talking about. And they said, don't leave five minutes before the miracle. I said, what? And, well, I've, you know, I've stayed for many miracles in this program that have happened to me personally and that I've seen happen to other people in this program. So I, I know it's all true, and I, I am just so grateful to Overeaters Anonymous because I truly don't believe I'd be alive today if it weren't for this program because I would have killed myself with food. And I know that. I know that to be true. So I am forever grateful, and um, I'm going to stop there. Thanks for letting me share. Do we have time? Uh, we probably do. Uh, what time? Okay, so we actually have 10 minutes if anyone else would like to share. I'm never opposed to stopping early if no one has anything else, but we have time if you'd like to get up and share. And yes, please. And certainly I related to the fact when I first came into the program that people would read the traditions and I would be ready, you know, go to the bathroom or, you know, I would be doing something, you know, and um, I kind of listen and over the years I just realized that it's really the traditions, they were just as important to me as success and they really saved my life in many ways. I really feel like, you know, I grew up in this program and, and emotionally and um, it's because of the traditions. When I first came, I saw the differences. You know, people were different religions, people were different races, people were different, uh, had different preferences, uh, gender preferences. And, you know, and I was nervous, you know, and I, and I felt, I didn't really, I didn't even like myself, I did about love myself. And, and because I could come, and with the traditions, everyone was welcome, no matter what. You know, everybody was welcome. Not just you had an honest desire to stop eating how possibly you were welcome. And it was over time that I learned how to trust people in the program because I wasn't judged. I wasn't judged. I could be who I was, you know, just as, as, as the speaker shared. And I would not be the person I am today if it hadn't been for the traditions. And it's, you know, I just have to laugh sometimes because I, you know, when they were sharing, you know, they were sharing, I thought, yeah, I didn't listen when I first came into the traditions at all, and, and how critical and how key it is to my being able to feel that I belong. And I think that's one of the things I grew up, I never felt I belonged. And I felt that I just felt I belonged in my family, forget about it in the world. And so this really has been the foundation of, of learning really emotional maturity. So... And the other thing I want to say about the traditions is I've been to a worship on the traditions. Um, uh, it was a, a different culture program. Uh, but they talked about their traditions in relationship not only to the, uh, to the uh, fellowship of the meetings, but in your personal life and your relationship at home. And it was a very interesting and eye-opening. You know, I mean, a common good comes first if you're in a relationship and, or in a, a household. And how those things really... Helped, helped me to relate. Uh, it was very um, helpful in, in building a relationship, in a good relationship, because these are the, if people in AA could use these traditions and stay together, which was, a, I thought, a miracle to start with after reading AA Comes of Age, then how 
wonderful it would be to use the traditions at home in a, in a, in a household and how, how that could strengthen a personal relationship, you know, in, in a partner relationship. So I just wanted to mention that because I thought that was just very interesting to think about using them in not just, you know, in a group, but in a, in a swallow group in a household. Thank you. It is now time to close this workshop. Please join me in a moment of silence. And uh, then if we could form a circle and uh, for the third step prayer. <laughs>